There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hey everybody, I'm Priyanka Arabindi and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. This is my very first episode. I am really excited because today we're talking to Danny Meyer. Danny is the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. He's responsible for some of the best, most famous restaurants in the world. There's Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Mayalino, Daily Provisions, which has my favorite pastry in the world, the Cruller, and of course, Shake Shack, which Lovett would say is the absolute best of all of the restaurants on this list. I hope you guys are excited about this conversation because it is one of the best I've had in a long time. Hi there, Danny. I am Priyanka. Hi, Priyanka. It's very, very nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I hope I hope you'll feel that way when we're done. A few months ago, I read Setting the Table and absolutely loved it. I took notes on my Kindle, which is impossible to take notes on. I revamped a lot of the processes around my newsletter based on what I read. Um, became obsessed with like the idea of feedback and service and a lot of the stuff that you outlined in Enlightened Hospitality and thought it was incredible. But while I was reading, I drew some big parallels between some of the principles you were laying out and how they could apply to the political arena, especially leading up to the midterms with campaigns and candidates, tons of organizations that are all competing for hearts and minds of voters kind of in the same way that you outline your restaurants trying to like build relationships and doing the same with patrons. And similar, uh, I thought that there were like a lot of takeaways that would be great for people in the political arena to get from what you outlined. Uh, but before we kind of get into all of that, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your background, something that stood out to me before you were in hospitality, had this huge empire of restaurants. Um, you actually worked on a campaign really early in your career. How did you get into that? And what was that experience like for you? Well, it actually goes way back before um, the 1980 campaign uh, for President John Anderson's independent presidential campaign that you're talking about, all the way back to when I was 10 years old. And I was at a summer camp, and uh, we had what was called a mock election, and uh, or a mock convention. They had a mock Democratic convention and a mock Republican convention. And every single camper at this eight-week summer camp was responsible for picking a candidate that they wanted to, to work for. So I haven't thought about this story for a long, long time, but I remember picking Eugene McCarthy uh, because I liked the song. I want to vote for Eugene McCarthy that they were singing. I liked his song the best. And then I came back home to St. Louis and I found myself volunteering to work for a guy who was running for Congress by standing on a street corner, handing out leaflets. And then I found myself uh, in 1972 working for George McGovern. Oh, wow. And then in 1976, after I graduated uh, from high school uh, at 18, I was a summer intern uh, for our Missouri Senator Stuart Symington, who was 
really one of the classic centrist kind of Democrats. Um, you know, he and Everett Dirksen were sort of contemporaries. And this was at a time when it wasn't, I win, you lose. It was really about reaching across the aisle and compromising. And then it wasn't until, um, and, and actually I, I then worked in the Connecticut State Legislature as a freshman in college for the guy who was going to be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So I really was fascinated by politics. I was a poli-sci major. And I think 1980 was was kind of it for me. Um, certainly it was the last time I ever worked professionally for any politician. And that was a $214 a week job to be the Cook County field coordinator for John Anderson's independent campaign for president um, when I was living in Chicago. Great experience. Um, and on the other hand, it soured me in a lot of ways because I would say that 90% of what we were doing back then was was either trying to raise another dollar or trying to convince people that a vote for Anderson was not a vote against Reagan or a vote against Carter. And um, to this day, I'm absolutely fascinated by the political arena uh, in terms of reading everything possible, uh, but it's just not something that's tempted me uh, personally. Yeah, wow, that is, you've been involved or have had history in this for way longer than I realized. That is so cool. I'm curious about the takeaways from that experience that you now bring into your career in hospitality and how that's shaped what you do now. The biggest one, um, this is in 1980, I was 22 years old, and almost everyone who worked for me uh, was older than I was, and everyone who worked for me was a volunteer, meaning that I didn't have the ability to give someone a raise to motivate them. Um, I certainly couldn't dock anyone their pay. I couldn't couldn't do anything except really try to appeal to the higher purpose uh, that we all were signing up for. And that higher purpose was a belief in what John Anderson stood for. And I think to this day, as a matter of fact, this morning, I had a meeting with a group of 20 people who have newly been hired at, at our Union Square Hospitality Group restaurants and businesses. And I actually spoke to them, not about where I got this experience from, but I spoke to them about the concept of being a volunteer. And I absolutely took from that experience that just because you have the opportunity to pay somebody um, for their work doesn't mean that you should omit the notion that if you're good enough to work in our company, you're probably good enough to and talented enough to have gotten at least 10 or 15 other job opportunities. And so as far as I'm concerned, the fact that you chose to work for us means that you are volunteering. Yeah, you're going to get a paycheck, but it is up to me to give you more reasons than just your paycheck to want to work here. And there's absolutely no question in my mind that that experience as a 22-year-old of of motivating a, a team of 25 volunteers was pivotal in how I look at leadership. Yeah, I remember that anecdote actually from the book. And I loved that. The fact that that they should want to be there and there should be some incentive aside from a paycheck. And there were a few things also when you're talking about enlightened hospitality in the book, some components, making people feel good and seen being at the heart of hospitality and creating the notion of shared ownership and, um, you know, making people feel like a restaurant is theirs and they want to bring someone there because it's their spot. And there were some of that that really kind of as I was reading it, 
really stuck out to me in my mind as having an immediate parallel with politics and, um, you know, candidates and campaigns and wanting someone to feel an ownership over, um, you know, like that they're being seen and heard by this person and they want to share it with their friends. That's kind of like the most successful grassrootsy type of um, engagement. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think we all know that that human beings are definitely tribal characters. We like to belong to things. We like to to affiliate with groups of people. Um, and I, I think that what's happened today, unfortunately, is that belonging to one has taken on the, I, I think, the additional weight of meaning excluding others. And I don't think it has to be that way. I, I remember my favorite clubs in college and um, you know fraternities were the ones that yeah, they had a group membership, but they opened their doors to everybody at the same time. And I, I think that um, any organization, whether it's a political campaign or a restaurant, um, does its best work when it understands that people are looking for a place that they can belong and, um, and can feel proud to affiliate with. And I think that goes for a job. I think that nobody today... Uh, doesn't care about what their company stands for. I, I, I shouldn't ever say nobody, but I I'm going to say most people today care deeply about what their organization stands for. Yes, they need a job or they wouldn't be there, but I, I do believe that lining up your, your own set of values with what your company stands for, and it doesn't have to be political, is hugely important. I think that also goes for consumers. I, I think, you know, take New York City. We've got 26,000 restaurants in the city. There's absolutely no reason anybody needs to come to any of our restaurants. Yeah, you got to eat and drink, but you don't have to come to one of our restaurants to do it. And you don't have to come to one of our restaurants to do it. And so I, I think that in a city that has so much good food um, and so many beautiful restaurants and fun restaurants, you still need to give people extra reasons to want to work there. You still need to give people extra reasons to want to dine there over and above the thing that the restaurant actually does. Definitely. Um, and that's kind of where enlightened hospitality in my mind, reading about that stood out to me as something that made your places kind of stand apart from the rest of the options out there. Um, some things that in particular, when I was reading, stuck with me was recognizing the value of a solo diner and like almost treating them really specially because, you know, they could bring their friends, their family, whoever with them the next time around if they have a good experience and feel like they're being seen. And kind of another one was going above and beyond to insert yourself in the interaction, but at the right moment. So reading kind of what's going on and where people are in their conversations and interactions and how to kind of interact with them in a way that they will respond best to. And in some of the same ways that you use those principles in your restaurants and the people who work for you use them, I was wondering what ideas you had around enlightened hospitality and how politicians can try to use them or campaigns can try to use them and get people's attention and, you know, capture the heart and mind in that same way. Well, that's a big, that's a big question. I'm going <laughs> to do the best I can to, to try to respond. I think it really starts with hiring people who are part of your organization for the right reasons and understanding that 
51% of why you're hiring somebody is who they are and 49% of why you're hiring someone is how good they are at what they know how to do. And then I think it's crucially important that um, if you're going to lead an organization, your leadership is ultimately defined by your followership. You, it's, you can't have only one side of that coin. It's, it's, it's really a two-sided coin. And I think that once you've been very, very clear with people what they signed up for and what the organization is, you got to deliver. And, you, you know, human beings are wonderful in that we make more mistakes than any other animal on earth and we wake up on more different sides of the bed than any other animal on earth. And so every day is a very different day for an organization. And I think really good leaders need to be super humble. I think, I think it's a really crucial thing to, to attract a group of people and, and charge them with coming up with fresh ideas. I think if the leader thinks that she or he knows everything that's a big mistake. That's ultimately not going to attract the most talented people because I think the most talented people in any organization are people who want to grow, who want to contribute. And and so good listeners uh, who are humble um, and who nevertheless say, here is broadly where I want to take us. Here's why I think it's important. Here's how I think we should get there. But I am completely open to better, safer, more fun, more um, uplifting ways of reaching the destination. I get to pick the destination. You need to help figure out how all of us are going to get there more effectively, efficiently, and enjoy the ride. And I think really good leaders do that. I also think that if there's any one major, major lesson I've learned through the years is that Far more important to people than being agreed with is knowing that you heard them. And I would say we've made our biggest mistakes. Uh, I've made my biggest mistakes as a leader when people don't feel heard. It's not ever fun. It's not ever easy to tell someone that you see things differently. But as long as you have first acknowledged their point of view... I think change can happen a lot more quickly. And I think that embedded in the notion of leadership is not just taking people to a place, but sometimes taking people to an unexpected place. And usually the um, I, I've found that the, the journey that you're leading people on is rarely linear. It's almost more like a sailboat regatta where I see this faraway island and I know in the morning that that's where we're pointing the sailboat. But we're going to be doing a lot of tacking and coming about and uh, jibing before, before we get there. And I need to rely upon the people in the front of the boat to tell me what the conditions are so that when we get there, it's quicker than it would have been if it had just been me. And it's a hell of a lot more fun. Definitely. That seems so applicable to you know, a campaign structure and what a candidate versus all the people who work to make a candidate or a candidacy happen. It seems super applicable to them. We'll be back with Danny Meyer after this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by the upcoming film, The Front Runner, from Oscar-nominated director Jason Reitman, who brought us Thank You for Smoking, Juno, and Up in the Air. The Front Runner is like many things we cover in Crooked Conversations, a largely unknown story that had a massive effect on our world. 
Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, the charismatic politician and overwhelming frontrunner for the 1988 presidential election. Senator Hart led George H.W. Bush in the polls by 13 points, and everyone was certain he would win. And then the world as we knew it changed, and a private scandal became front-page headlines for the first time. The frontrunner is about a turning point in American history when privacy ended, and we as a country decided that we have the right to know. Written by Matt By and Jay Carson, this is a scandal in the story that started it all. Bush 1, Bush 2, the Clinton impeachment, our 17-year war in Afghanistan, it started with one scandal. Two things to do on November 6th. Vote, and then go see the frontrunner. Text frontrunner to 26797 to find your nearest polling place and buy your tickets to see the frontrunner. Message and data rates may apply. And I'm also now want you to explain a little bit about the principles of enlightened hospitality and how a customer or a person who comes to a restaurant would interact with them and experience it for themselves. Because that, in my mind, was so specific and unique and very cool. Well, thanks. So the, the principle, let's start with the word hospitality. It's, it's a word that we don't often hear in the context of organizational structure. You know, when I was growing up, it was a word we always heard with respect to my grandparents on Thanksgiving or something. Mm-hmm. But it's a really potent business principle, which, which understands that, that uh, the way you make people feel is even more important than how good you are at what you do. Now, as you heard me say earlier, we believe that the the recipe it's a it's a great recipe because there's only two ingredients but the recipe for success is 49 parts performance how good you are at the stuff you're supposed to be doing how competent you are does the product or does the campaign or whatever organization you want to mention does the baseball team you know do they get a bunch of hits or not um that's but but guess what in in this realm it's only 49% of what makes a champion that the real the 51% is how are you making people feel along the way? And enlightened hospitality is basically saying since 51% hospitality, letting all the people you're working with, whether all of all five of your stakeholders and every organization has the exact same five stakeholders, it's creating what we call a virtuous cycle where um, – we found, as we were looking at the success of our restaurants, starting with the Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern and a bunch of others and leading to Shake Shack thereafter, they were all doing the exact same thing. And they were actually making the employees, the staff members, the team members, the very first stakeholder. Mm-hmm. And we were doing something really weird, odd, which I'd certainly never learned about in school, which is we always put our customers second. And the reason we did that was not because we don't care deeply about guest satisfaction. It's because we believe that by putting them second, we actually increase the odds of succeeding even more often. So I've learned uh, year in and year out that the way our team members feel when they come to work is an amazing correlating predictor as to how successful we will be with our guests. When when morale is down at a restaurant, and let's face it, you know, it's not it's like a it's like a really good book, but not every chapter is as great as the preceding or succeeding one. Sometimes morale is down, and a hundred percent of the time morale is down in any one of our restaurants. 
I can almost always see that end up on the plate Mm -hmm. when you come in to dine. Likewise, when things are going really well, it tends to lead to a really happy guest. So we decided that we were going to create this virtuous cycle of enlightened hospitality where the very, very first stakeholder is our own team, followed by our guests, followed by, by the community in which we do business, followed by our suppliers, and then finally followed by our investors. And it's again, it's not because we don't want to have really happy customers. It's not because we don't want to have really, really happy investors. It's because in a virtuous cycle, one good thing just keeps leading to something even better. So if you really wanted to have happy investors, if you put them first, if, if, if I were to make all of my decisions first and foremost based on what I think was going to make our investors happy, my guess is that over time it would create unnecessary tension with the other stakeholders that would actually potentially lead to a vicious cycle. And certainly we've seen that happen. You know, a classic example of that is the collapse of Enron in Texas several years ago, where by trying to put the interest of the investors first, and maybe even with some lack of integrity thrown in, it decimated a community, it decimated an employee base, it certainly des- it ultimately decimated customers, and, and then, of course, it ultimately decimated all the investors as well. So this is a much, much more uplifting and more sustainable way to go about business. And it's exactly how we run every single one of our restaurants, regardless of whether it's a fancy restaurant or, you know, an everyday barbecue joint like Blue Smoke. That's I think of that when you say that I uh, think of a structure in politics almost, you know, you have the campaign staff, obviously you have constituents, you have money in politics and you have donors. The first thing actually my mind jumped to was the tax plan and how playing to the interest of quote unquote investors or donors um, might not be to the interest of your base or the people who want you in office and may not ultimately benefit them. And then what do you do? How does that affect, you know, the deny, deny, deny. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I wonder if the structure was reformulated a bit in politics. I know it's been a certain way for a while. Um, but if they kind of took a page from what you were doing, what that would look like, it's an interesting concept and in theory should be like that. But I mean, also, I think you have campaigns saying that constituents obviously are first. And I think very little attention, outwardly at least, is paid to the people who are on the campaign and making it happen. I wonder, now I have to go to speak to people because I've never experienced life on a campaign before. I'm now interested in figuring out like how the mood in the organization ends up affecting how the candidate and the organization as a whole interact with constituents and what they end up doing. It's very interesting to think about. Oh, I think it's absolutely the case. Um, I, you know, the, the politicians that seem to really be resonating with people are effectively leading the conversation. The ones who, and you may or may not agree with the conversation, but mm-hmm. that authenticity is, is ringing true to a lot more people than the politicians who sent out a pollster to, to try to figure out what are the eight issues that are going to resonate with the most people. And let me go, let me go talk about those things. I think that totally. market-tested ideas are not 
ringing nearly as true or effective as first a leader. And, and you know, I think we deserve a leader um, with a sharp point of view who then educates us, listens, makes people feel included and not excluded, and builds a base uh, by virtue of persuading people and teaching people and leading people through, you know, being being someone I want to follow. Right. But also also being someone who who is interested in always broadening their base, not just deepening their base. Yeah, and thinking about your 49-51% breakdown of 49% about the technical qualities and 51% how you were making someone feel. I think of that and what you're saying and and kind of picture uh, better O'Rourke of all candidates, like someone who is technically very qualified, is not, you know, working on a focus group, tested message, is speaking about what they passionately believe in, but making an effort to speak one-on-one with voters and like reach them where they are and also radiate this warmth in a sense. I think it, it the successful candidates in my lifetime or the people that I think about in this way as like being a very inspiring politician, all kind of, I see that 4951 breakdown in them. It's a really very cool formula. We'll be back with more of this conversation about politics and hospitality after this break. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Honeywell. There are so many smart home products that help you see and know what's going on in your home. So how do you know what's the best for you and your family? Honeywell Smart Home Security is total awareness DIY security system because it's good to know who's home and who isn't or if there's a package sitting at your front door. And it's easy to set up, which means it won't kill the whole weekend. You won't need to wait for someone to come to your house and install it between some random five-hour window. Honestly, I like working from home, so I prefer that, but it's fine. And you won't be locked into any contract either. Smart Home Security is an all-in-one solution for your home. It captures video in crisp 1080p HD, night and day, and it can tell you if you left a window or door open, and it has an Amazon Alexa built in. It senses sound and motion inside your home and sends a notification to your phone. You can even customize your system with the right accessories so it can place sounds like a dog barking if it detects someone outside the home. There's so many reasons why this security system is great, but the biggest reason is that it can help protect what matters most, your way. Right now, go to HoneywellHome.com and enter promo code CROOKEDWORLD to get 20% off a camera base station store price. That's HoneywellHome.com, enter CROOKEDWORLD. From politics, but also now to restaurants broadly, there has kind of been a very public intersection lately uh, between political figures and dining. Um, I can think of like Sarah Sanders, Stephen Miller, Kirsten Nielsen, these Trump administration people who have had really high profile incidents when they go dine out and they've been told off, they've been turned away, they've been met with protesters. I'm wondering what your reaction as someone who owns and operates restaurants is and how the principles of hospitality work then. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot and and I would not personally want to see that happen in any of our restaurants at all. And I know that uh, there are, I have very, very close friends. I have relatives who have disagreed with me when I've shared that, um, saying, 
if if you don't resist at every step of the way, um, you're you're no longer a friend or a relative or a comrade. And my my feeling is very different. I, I really think it starts to become a slippery slope in a restaurant, which is a public place uh, that exists for the purpose not only of feeding people and sating their thirst, but more importantly, of being a respite from their lives where where people can sit across the table from one another. I do believe the table remains one of those sacred places in life where people should have discussions and debates and arguments over, you know, breaking bread and and a good glass of wine. And and I and I, you know, the minute we start collecting people's affiliations at the front door, and deciding who can and cannot eat, who should and should not have discussions here. I believe we give license to everyone on our team to start deciding who they decide should get hospitality and who shouldn't. And it can actually devolve into some pretty ugly places. And so from my point of view, I am um, resolute in my mind that my personal and private political opinions are my own and I I have a place I can do something about that not just at the voting booth which is crucially important but also there are other ways I can do that but I'm not running a country club I'm not running a business club I'm not running a social club I'm running a public restaurant and I do want to give people a sanctuary to to use that place to work out their issues you know for all I know uh, the, the very person that that won my protest was having dinner with somebody to debate an issue. And maybe they were going to come out of that meal somewhat enlightened. Now, maybe that's idealistic on my part, but I just don't want to go down that path. Mm-hmm. I um, remember a letter I saw that you wrote to your employees the day after the election, basically saying similar things, kind of reminding them to keep their heads up and to make people who were reeling from what happened during the election, you know, feel seen and heard and kind of reminding them that this is hard for them to deal with. So let's make this a place, a sanctuary for them, a place where they can experience hospitality and someone, you know, giving care. I'm kind of wondering if you think, if your stance has evolved since then, and if you think having a political stance can coexist with running a business and play a part in that, even if it doesn't in yours specifically or not explicitly in yours? Well, I I think you can, but I also think that you can do so in a way that's deeply respectful of of other people's opinions as well. Now, if, you know, we we spoke earlier about how our first stakeholder is our own team. Mm -hmm. I promise you that when we interview people, we do not ask them who they voted for or who they intend to vote for. And I can also promise you that there are people on our staff who have a wide range of political points of view. So, you know, we're, we're focused on who are the guests in our restaurants, but I'm telling you that's secondary even to who's working in our restaurants. And so while I don't try to hide my own political affiliations um, and points of view from anybody. I do think that, and maybe this is having grown up as a middle child in a Midwest bellwether state at the time, Missouri back in those days wasn't all red. It kind of went with whoever the president was. 
that I've always been somebody who's much more interested in trying to reach across the aisle and bring people in uh, and learn. I don't, I don't have every answer. Um, I really, really regret that so much of the conversation we're having is yelling at each other from our respective five-yard lines of the football field. We can't even hear each other. And so it is important to me to have a point of view, but also it's, an, it's equally important for me to realize that whatever I think I know, I'm always willing to listen to somebody else. I'm, I'm not really interested in getting into a shouting match with anybody, however. Mm-hmm. I, um, while reading your book, I thought it was funny. Your book was written in 2006. So you had this anecdote about The Apprentice that actually was super timely when I was reading it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> huh, we know who that is. Um, I was wondering if you could share the story with the people who are listening now. Well, I think what I was, I was writing about some of the some of the times the the things we've chosen not to do uh, business wise are far more important than things we've said yes to. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the many 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 things that we've said no thank you to was an invitation to appear on The Apprentice. I'd much rather go on your podcast. <laughs> um, but back in two thousand six. That was a pretty hot show. I don't remember what year it started, but it was probably in its third or fourth year at that point. Mm-hmm. And I knew enough about it to say, that's absolutely not the frame I want around our piece of art. It's it's just not consistent with our values, shouting you're fired at somebody and um, pounding your chest while you're doing it. And, and um, you know, it, it just was of no interest. So, yeah, I, I, I did write about that. That was long before any of us were looking at that show's star as being a potential commander-in-chief of our country. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by ExpressVPN. There's a battle going on with the future of the internet and your right to privacy. Big corporations like ISPs and ad networks are getting rich from selling your data. And Congress has completely failed to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. Now, internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon are free to restrict websites, spy on your online activity, or sell your browsing history to advertisers. I don't want my internet browsing to be tracked and sold. That's why I use ExpressVPN. With one click, ExpressVPN shields my online activity from internet and mobile providers, as well as hackers and spies. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. They secure and anonymize your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated number one VPN service by TechRadar, comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever are using public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies and Russians from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is definitely the solution. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash crookedconvos. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash crookedconvos for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash crookedcombos to learn more. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it, between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. 
Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. And now I know you also have a voting initiative going on within your company and you're doing voter registration efforts at your restaurants and helping your employees, giving them time to vote. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and who came up with that idea and how it's been going so far? It's uh, it's something I'm really proud of because I was not the generator of the idea. It was our team and mm-hmm. it was people on our team saying, look, we realize that there are different political stripes within our company, but I think a lot of people are tired of hearing the daily complaining about the news coming from every angle. Right. And it's just like, shut up and vote because that's, that's you know, an incredibly constructive thing you can do. Mm-hmm. And they started looking at statistics in New York State, I believe, I, I think I saw the number 55% of New Yorkers voted um, in the last election. And, you know, the other 45% of the people are complaining probably just as much as the 55% who did vote. So vote because that's the gift we've been given in this democracy. And that's that's an absurd number. And, and so we then said, well, okay, well, what are the various things we can do? We looked at some companies like Patagonia, which is closing all of its stores on election day to make a major, major point. Mm-hmm. And... We looked at that and we said, you know, that would be nice to do that. But you know that fleecy I bought from Patagonia, which I love? Let's say Patagonia is closed tomorrow for business. I'm going to still buy that fleecy the next day. But in a restaurant, if we lose a whole day of business, that's it. You're never going to get that day back. It's not like, oh, I'm going to eat yesterday's breakfast tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so we said, all right, so that's out. So what else, what are the things we can do? And the two ideas that our team came up with, which I fully supported, were number one, to embrace um, an organization that is helping to make it really, really easy uh, for people uh, to register to vote. And number two, and, and we actually have, for the past two weekends, um, supported when we all vote, both in terms of sending crullers and all the things you love from Daily Provisions <laughs> up to their kickoff event in Columbus Circle two weekends ago. And then this past weekend at two of our places, Tacosina, our, our Mexican restaurant and in Brooklyn, and, and then also Porchlight, which is a bar here in Manhattan, we had uh, we invited the organization to come help us to register people to vote. And we're going to continue that. But here's the other thing that I love. New York State, along with Minnesota and and maybe another um, state or two in the the country, and you may know this answer better than I do, did something uh, which which I love, and unfortunately a lot of people don't know about it, and that's that that they made it mandatory for organizations to pay for up to two hours of time for their employees to go vote. Incredibly important, especially for hourly workers for whom giving up one hour or two hours if it's a long commute is too much. Mm -hmm. And so they say, you know, I can either give up $30, which may be a big, big deal, 
or I can vote. And so they don't vote. It's creating the choice and, so, and forcing yeah, them so to vote. Yeah, so what we're doing is to say two hours paid is great, but we're going to bump that up to three hours just to make a point to everyone on our team, which is we want you to vote so much we're willing to pay for whatever time it takes you to do that, and you will not have to give that up. I wish there were more states doing that. Uh, my understanding is that the Minnesota – uh, voter rates are dramatically higher than what I just said. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it, I think it may be north of 70% voted in 2016. Oh, wow. And so this is a this is something that actually works. Totally, giving and making it more accessible. And that's a, yeah, I commend you and the company for doing that. And I mean, I think also the special I voted crawler stuck out of my mind if that's going to get people get them to the polls, show them your sticker to get that delicious thing. That is amazing. Right. So when you do vote, one of the things New York also does is they give you a little sticker to yeah. wear around town, which I love. And if you wear that sticker into Daily Provisions, you're going to get rewarded with a free crawler after that. Wow. You're ma- <laughs> trying to make me, um, well, I can't go over there on election day because I don't vote there, but I wish. Um, We're actually doing some of our own voting initiatives. We have Vote Save America, which is a voter initiation or um, a pledge kind of that voters can take to vote, but also helps them get registered. We have a page for every state with competitive races, what's going to be on their ballot, a bunch of really useful things that make it a lot easier because like the having the time and the actual, um, you know, ability worked into your day or built into your day to vote. It's also difficult to get all the information you need. And it's been like you have to consult a bunch of different sites to find out who's in what race and what place and, you know, what are the issues that you should know about and how can I register? It's It's been very fragmented before. So that's kind of on Crooked's end. We're trying to do some of our own, like something to make it just easier for people. There shouldn't be so many barriers and so it shouldn't be so difficult to yeah, participate. I think that's fantastic that you're doing that. And I know you know Jason Kander, who's from my home state of Missouri, yeah. and I really admire what he's been doing ever since he narrowly lost the Senate seat in Missouri right. a couple years ago. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that everybody is sort of taking this moment and stepping up and realizing, like, hey, what is happening is we're not okay with it, and what are what's a concrete step we can take to make that, you know, not be the case? Voting and making sure everyone we know and care about is doing the same. Here, here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. This is great, and I was just glad to be able to talk to you after reading this book. I was absolutely obsessed, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Priyanka, and um, thanks for being late to the party on the book, too. Otherwise, this <laughs> never would have happened. I know, incredibly late, but, I mean, getting a second wind, I hope. Awesome. Guys, thank you for listening. I had so much fun talking to Danny, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Check back next week for another awesome convo from the people at the Crooked Network.
It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.